This time on Chew Diligence, Christopher Elbow talks to us about Valentine's Day, chocolate, donuts, ice cream, coffee, and so much more. Not every Valentine's fits into a heart-shaped box. Not everybody celebrates Valentine's Day. So we wanted to kind of pay homage to them a little bit. I think creating new bonbons, both from the aesthetics and the flavor, is one of the funnest parts of the job. So we always you know, make sure the team is involved in that. So it is a very collaborative effort. We really wanted to find a way to have more of a connection to the farmers mm-hmm. and the places we get this chocolate from. And then also celebrate the fact that it is a lot like wine and coffee. This tastes different depending on where it's grown. Welcome to Two Diligence, a podcast about people, places, and other important things on the Kansas City food scene. I'm Jill Silva. My co-host, Lindsay Shively, is on maternity leave, but we'll be back in the pod studio for our next conversation with Chef Andrew Longres and key players of the American Restaurant and Crown Center, a dining institution that is celebrating its 45th anniversary and a record 20th consecutive year hosting a James Beard Foundation dinner. Today, my guest is the renowned chocolatier Christopher Elbow. His wares include handcrafted bonbons, a bean-to-bar line, drinking chocolate, not to mention ice cream and soon donuts and coffee. He grew up in Liberty, got his bachelor's degree in restaurant management and business management from the University of Nebraska, and was the head of pastry chef at Emeril Lagasse's Delmonico in Las Vegas. He got his start in the world of chocolate by creating unique truffles and bonbons while working as the pastry chef at the American restaurant. Since 2003, he's built his own chocolate empire and is recognized as one of the best in his chosen profession. Welcome to Chew Diligence, Christopher Elbow. Thank you. Happy to be here. You brought some lovely things (laughs) along with you today, um, and I'm going to eat them really soon, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but not before I wear them. Right. Tell us a little bit about this new Valentine's Day item because we're not that far away from the chocolate holiday of the year. It is the chocolate holiday of the year. It is the chocolate holiday of the year, especially for us. Um, But this year we created something a little different. We kind of wanted to go off the beaten path a little bit. You know, we always do heart-shaped chocolates and things that are pink and red and... um, you know, Valentine's Day themed. So we kind of were talking about different things and we had this idea toying around last year, but we weren't able to execute it in time. So we created what we're calling our tattoo collection. And (laughs) when we were talking about non-traditional Valentine's Day, um, something kind of, a saying kind of was born that not every Valentine's fits into a heart-shaped box. Not everybody celebrates Valentine's Day. So we wanted to kind of pay homage to them a little bit. So we've created uh, three collections, and when you open the box, they, the design appears to be uh, kind of an old-fashioned tattoo, kind of a classic tattoo look uh, with different sayings on them. So we have one with a skull that says, till death, okay. um, another one that's uh, with a rose that's true love, and then <clears throat> we can't forget about mom, so we did that classic mom tattoo, you know, with the heart, um, and each one comes with a temporary tattoo to have some fun with. I like it. and. Do you have a tattoo or do you wear the temporary tattoo? I wear the temporary tattoos. I haven't gotten my, my real one yet. And did you did you get together with tattoo artists at all or can you just do this on your own as a chocolate yeah, we didn't, expert? Yeah, we didn't uh, consult any tattoo artists, <laughs> but we think that might be a fun thing next year. 
Um, so far, the response has been really great, but we thought maybe next year we partner with some local tattoo artists to create you know, their own unique designs. That is not at all surprising me because you are such a collaborator over the years. You have mm. done lots mm. of different collaborations. Another one that for Valentine's Day was with Boulevard, the chocolate ale, and that was wildly successful. Yeah. Is that, is that continuing at this point? Or? Yeah, so they, um, they took a couple years off, um, but they released it again this year um, about a month ago, and uh, it uh, still proves to be wildly successful. And my understanding is that's their number one requested beer uh, from uh, customers. Wow. Okay. That, <clears throat> that's, that's a little mind-boggling. It, <laughs> it they is. they make a lot of great, great beer. So. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you think it is about the chocolate ale that really captures people's attention? Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I've been able to pinpoint that, you know, over the years. You know, I, I know some of it at the beginning was... Uh, you know, usually the first time something's done, everybody's excited about it and crazy about it. But this has had some lasting uh, um, appeal. And uh, coming out around Valentine's Day, I think it's a, a good product, you know, if somebody's not a wine drinker, um, that they can uh, share it with their loved ones on Valentine's Day. I remember when that first came out, there were lines like a rock concert. Yeah, people were banging on the back of our chocolate shop door. And, you know, we couldn't sell alcohol, so we didn't have any, you know. Yeah. People would see me in a parking lot or in a, a store and, you know, how do you know, do you have some, do you, you know, I think I, I texted you as well. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. where's my bottle? <laughs> so when that comes out, I just typically shut my phone off and kind of go into hibernation for a few days until the uh, excitement wears off. That's, that's really a very fun, <laughs> fun legacy to have for sure. Do yeah. you feel like a rock star? I mean, you are referred to over and over and over in media as the Willy Wonka of Kansas City, the Willy Wonka of the nation, the candy man. Um, How do you wear that title? Would you prefer a different one or do you like Um, that one? I I appreciate it. I don't necessarily, you know, look or, you know, seek out that kind of attention. I would be happy just being in the kitchen and, you uh, you know, kind of playing behind the scenes. So. Um, but we embrace it, you know, or, you know, and as, not only me, but as a company you know, uh, that, you know, people see us in that kind of role and, and uh, we uh, honor it and we'll, you know, have fun with it. Okay. So which version of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory do you prefer? Hands down the original. <laughs> no question. Yeah. The other one was a little. A little dark and I don't know. It, it was fun to see a, another reincarnation of it but uh it's it's funny because i just watched the original the other night it was on tv so you never get tired of that movie there's something about it that's just kind of magical isn't it yeah and it kind of some you know chocolate is this really great thing you know it's a you know it's a luxury it's a you know people tend to you know have very strong feelings about chocolate and you know one way or the other so it's just kind of this food that uh um has this pull over people. Absolutely. Now, let's <clears throat> let's back up for people who don't know how you got into chocolate in the first place. It has a connection to the American restaurant, actually, doesn't it? Yeah, that's kind of where we started uh, experimenting with chocolate. We would send chocolates out at the end of the meal with a check, you know, kind of as a menu D and a, <clears throat> you know, thank you. And um, it became one of my favorite kind of job duties, um, 
exploring with the different ways to decorate chocolate, some of the different flavor combinations that you typically don't associate with chocolate. And um, it really, this company was born out of customers asking if they could buy them. And then and before that, I never, never saw myself, you know, owning a chocolate company or just specializing in chocolate. So it was kind of out of left field a little bit. And I was actually ready to <clears throat> get a little weary of the restaurant business at that time. And I had applied to go back to school for architecture. And I, I was like, oh, maybe there's something in this chocolate. I'll give it one year. We'll see what happens. And, and I can always go back to school. But thankfully, I'm not an architect. <laughs> well, um, now the architecture world may say that that's, you know, <laughs> that's their loss. Sure. Um, interesting, interesting <clears throat> differences here. I mean, is there anything similar about architecture and chocolate? What would have drawn you to architecture? I think so. I think there's a, a you know, a lot of... <clears throat> parallels between the two and you know I, I often look to inspiration you know at museums at read architecture books you know uh, looking at looking at spaces and lines and you know how can we adapt that to chocolate or pastry mm -hmm. so I, I don't think it was too big of a stretch <clears throat> um, but I'm just so happy that I'm a chocolatier so. <laughs> it's a happier Happier I think, you know, thing, we, or? We, we make people happy and, yeah. and you know, I, there's not a day that goes by that, that uh, I regret that decision to do this instead. But chocolate's so much more temporary. We pop it in our <clears> mouth, <throat> it's gone, and a building could have lasted forever. That's true. I hope our company lasts forever, though, and we keep making and making people happy. There you go. So do you have a, a Oompa Loompa succession plan? Plan we well. have we have great pe yeah we have we have you know I, I've got employees that have been with me twelve and eleven and ten years so you know I have a, an awesome team and wouldn't really be able to do what we do without you know all of everybody's uh, contribution. So when you started doing chocolate, was it <clears throat> it just because you were mostly interested in you know you were a pastry chef at the time, correct? Correct. And so you know that seems like something a pastry chef might want to play around with a little bit. Or did you know what you were getting into? Did you know much about chocolate? Did you, did you even like chocolate as a kid? I Yeah, I liked chocolate as a kid. I liked sweets. Um, I don't know if I really understood the bigger picture of what I was getting into. You know, I, I certainly never uh, envisioned getting our company to where it is this day when I started. You know, I kind of had this romantic notion that I'd be in a little room making bonbons and, you know working, you know, a, a normal, you know, person schedule as opposed to a restaurant schedule. And um, I, my wife makes me eat those words all the time when I'm working those 20-hour days at, at Christmas. But, um, I, you know, and I <clears throat> worked a lot with chocolate in different forms, you know, with baking and, you know, ice creams and pastry. But, but what I did always like about the pastry world is that we have more time to play with our food than hot food, savory food, so to speak, if that's a, a good way to say it. It can be molded. It can be, you know, it's very malleable and, and can be worked with much like an artist would work with, you know, bronze or, or paint or, you know, things like that. So that that was the initial appeal to me, not so much the, the taste and, and the flavor of chocolate um, because that has actually really evolved over the past 16 years that we've been in the business. So. You have really... <laughs> 
we'll start from the outside, really beautiful chocolates. And you were kind of, at least for me, very early on, that was the first chocolate that I was like, wow, this looks really contemporary Mm -hmm. um, and looks like a piece of art. And especially if you looked at the 21 box, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, it looks like you were looking at a bunch of jewels. Where did that sort of come from? Um, We weren't... You know, we we can't take credit for being the first person to, um, you know, color and decorate chocolates. It's kind of been done for a while, but I think we can take credit for taking it to another level. And typically, you know, and out of this kind of this American style of chocolate was born, you know, that you have French chocolate, you have Belgian and Swiss, and they all have their own kind of unique styles. And um, <clears throat> I think we can be credited with helping craft an American style of chocolate using bright colors and each piece has its own identity. And then also from the flavor standpoint, bold flavors, you know, not not real subtle flavors, kind of maybe like a typical French chocolate would be. And then um, more unique flavor combinations that you typically wouldn't associate with chocolate. And let's, <coughs> let's talk about some of my favorites. There's almost all the caramel ones as you... As you know, I can come in and just put together a whole box of nothing but caramel. You're not alone there. <laughs> We've got fleur de sel caramel, rosemary caramel, coffee caramel, lavender caramel, coconut caramel, and passion fruit caramel. And I'm sure there are others, but those are the ones I pulled off the mm-hmm. site the other day. Um, then you also had some really interesting flavors along the lines of pistachio bergamot, butterscotch bourbon, strawberry balsamic, calamansi, lime, Aztec spice. Uh, those are really unique flavors. Talk a little bit about the process of trying to put those flavors together. I think I even remember saffron being in one at one point yeah, in time. We, I mean, who thinks of saffron and chocolate? We do. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So that, that the flavor process, you know, we, while some of those might sound really unique and challenging, we never do anything that doesn't work or make sense in our mind. So I think we have pretty approachable and kind of normal flavors. Excuse me. Um, The process for kind of our, you know, we like to change our flavors or add four or five new ones to the line every year. And I don't know how many we've done over the years, hundreds and hundreds. So it's getting a little more challenging to come up with new flavor combinations that, that work and make sense. Um, but we practice somewhat of a level of restraint. It might not look that way with our product, um, but we typically try to limit it to mo- no more than two f- key flavors in a bonbon. I think uh, I see a lot of new people on the market <clears throat> trying to put in five, six, seven things, and you just lose that. Chocolate is a very strong flavor on its own, so our whole goal is to balance whatever flavor we're putting into it with that chocolate flavor. You don't want one or the other to overrun the other. Um, so that's always where we start. And if it doesn't work, you know, we go back to the drawing board and and keep working on it. Not to say that a particular flavor won't ever make sense with chocolate. We just need to maybe approach it in a different way. Maybe it's a caramel, maybe it's a a ganache or, you know, a fruit, fruit jelly or something, some other way to infuse that flavor, um, into the bonbon that's a little more successful. So do you do all the flavor profiles or do you have input or, you know, is it a research and development team? How does that work? Um, they don't all come from me. I've, you know, the, the, the staff that has been with me for, you know, 12 years, 
they have come to learn what I expect. So, and I think creating new bonbons, both from the aesthetics and the flavor, is one of the funnest parts of the job. So we always, you know, make sure the team is involved in that. So it is a very collaborative effort. And then talk a little bit about the difference between European and American, because you're, you're telling us kind of you're at the forefront of American chocolate. How does that differ from the rest of the world? I think really it is just like if you had to sum it up in one, one sentence, it's the bold flavors. You know, and I love French chocolate. French bonbons um, are typically my favorite, but they're very subtle. You know, they're, they're very uh, restrained and reserved you know, we want you to know exactly what it, flavor it is when you put that in your mouth. So, you know, we achieve that by using uh, real ingredients and not extracts. Mm-hmm. So if we're making something with fresh mint or a mint flavor, it is fresh mint leaves steeped in the cream and not, you know, an extract. Or um, <clears throat> we want it to taste like you just walked out to your garden and ate a piece of chocolate with a mint leaf. Um, so that's kind of in how I would differentiate the American style of chocolate making. Um, you know, we're using the same techniques that they've used in Europe for hundreds of years. So that hasn't changed other than the decorating, the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you take all of that away. We're making chocolate the same way they made it you know, hundreds of years ago in Belgium and France and Switzerland. So I'm curious about the chocolate, the actual chocolate, what are we talking about? Because we hear a lot about percentages, and mm-hmm. um, what what does that mean? I mean, are you doing milk chocolate or uh, dark chocolate or somewhere in the middle, and how do you decide when to use what kind of chocolate? Yeah, we pri- Primarily we use, <clears throat> I would call it almost a semi-sweet chocolate, you know, but the, the percentage, um, when you see that on a package note, really dictates, you know, how much of that bar or how much of that chocolate comes from the cacao bean. That includes cocoa butter. So if you see a 70% dark chocolate, 70% of what's in that bar came from the the cacao bean, and then the other 30% would typically be sugar. So really, one of the only kind of safe things you can conclude from that is how sweet that bar is going to be. So an 80%, it's going to be a lot less sweet than a 70 and a 60 Typical American chocolates, semi-sweets, probably in the 50% range. Um, Our custom blend that we have, and it's made by a very um, well-renowned chocolate maker in France called Valrona, is a 63% dark chocolate. And we crafted that um, really to make sure that we had a kind of a blank canvas, if that makes sense, because we throw a lot of flavors at at that chocolate. (laughs) So we need something that's really going to work with a lot of different flavors. Um, chocolate can run the gamut in flavors from fruity to nutty to earthy, and we kind of want something in the middle, you know, of that of that kind of flavor circle um, that will uh, work with everything. So <clears throat> that's kind of our base chocolate, and then from there, we do a little bit of white chocolate where we think it's appropriate. Typically, it's with more acidic fruits like passion fruit and lemon. Because you've got that acid that cuts through the the sweetness and the fattiness and the, and the of the milk, we do a little bit of milk chocolate, not so much, and then we also do a lot of like single origin dark chocolates. So a chocolate from a specific country um, that will craft into a bonbon, and we don't put any secondary flavor in that because we want you to appreciate 
and, and understand, you know, how chocolate can differ from uh, region to region. And that sort of uh, was the catalyst yeah. for the bean-to-bar line that you've been introducing in the last couple of years. And I have a couple of bars in mm-hmm. front of me that you were nice enough to bring along. And I see Brazil. Notice how you I put Brazil right one. on the top. <laughs> Husband's from Brazil, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, 70% dark, Haiti, 72%, Vietnam, 72%, and Dominican Republic, 72%. So what's going on here? <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, if we're just looking at percentages, three of these have the same percent. Yeah, so the, the bean to bar line <clears throat> was somewhat born out of, I think I went to my first cacao plantation in 2011 in Madagascar and it was the first time I ever saw how chocolate or how cacao, which which would be the the correct pronunciation for the fruit, was grown, and how difficult it was, and how many steps it goes through before it gets to the end consumer as chocolate. <clears throat> um, the farmers were super proud of of what they created. A lot of them have never tasted chocolate, so they only know this as an agricultural product, as as a fruit, something they grow and. What does it taste like as a fruit? <clears throat> Have you tasted so, it? Oh, yeah. The beans are almost inedible, actually. <clears throat> so okay. it, it's the seed of a, of a pod. Right. And when you open the pod up, there's this uh, citrusy uh, pulp that surrounds each bean. And it's, that is still one of my favorite experiences to this day is to pop, pop the seed in your mouth and just kind of suck on that, that, uh, that pulp. It's citrusy. It's floral sometimes, uh, sweet. And that's actually what uh, a couple things I've learned over the years is why the beans are so bitter is that's kind of a reproductive method for cacao. They rely on the animals to get in there and suck the pulp off and spit the seed out to to reproduce. How romantic. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But cacao is one of the few things that doesn't, when it's when it rots, it doesn't fall from the tree, so it doesn't have a way. You know, an apple drops, seed spread. You grow new trees. Right. Uh, cacao doesn't do that, so it's developed over the years to have this really bitter, astringent, you know, tannic uh, taste to it. And then <clears throat> it's the farmer's jobs at that point to ferment the bean correctly to start getting rid of some of those bitter flavors. Um, and it really isn't until that fermentation process that you actually start kind of making the connection between this fruit and chocolate. Uh, the aromas and color start to develop. And then after the fermentation process, it dries for another five to seven days. And then at that point, it would come up or, or be shipped off to a chocolate maker. And up until this time, or about two years ago, we've bought all of our chocolate from uh, Valrona in France and melt it and transform it into you know what we do. But um, <clears throat> we really wanted to find a way to have more of a connection to the farmers mm-hmm. and the places we get this chocolate from, and then also celebrate the fact that it is a lot like wine and coffee. This tastes different depending on where it's grown. There's different varietals, and uh, when you sit four of these in front of you, it's awesome to see people, un- you know, make that connection. You know, and they had they had no idea that this even existed. A lot of people don't understand. Or they think chocolate's a manufactured product, you know, in a in a factory. But there's a huge agricultural front to that before it even gets to the factory that we really want to kind of create, promote some awareness over. 
And so to do that, you've been traveling <clears throat> quite a bit. Tell us, uh, pick a place you went to recently and tell <clears throat> us a little bit about that. Um, our most recent trip last year was to uh, Nicaragua and Honduras. Um, chocolate grows twenty, basically 20 degrees north and south of the equator. So we've kind of have that, that tropical belt. And Central America and, and South America were really kind of the, or, or, you know, that's where chocolate originated. Um, <clears throat> and we would go to <clears throat> several farms, see several different types of operations, and um, kind of really what we walk away with is how difficult it is to farm cacao. It's something that can't be mechanized. It's very susceptible to disease. Um, even a healthy farm typically loses about 30% of their crop to, to uh, you know, one or two of these uh, kind of prolific diseases. And getting it to market, like the whole, <clears throat> you know, we're in, we're in remote places. I mean, one of the, the farms we went to, we had to take an hour and a half plane ride, land on, <clears throat> I wouldn't call it a runway, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that would be <clears throat> generous, a landing, strip. A, landing, a landing dirt strip, <laughs> and then take a canoe up a river an hour and a half to get to this farm. Wow. So I'm, whenever I'm in a place like that, I just, it boggles my mind that something from here ends up in Kansas City. That's wild. Now, how do you find <clears throat> these people? How do you know to get in the canoe and <laughs> paddle upstream? So we always work with, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, there, there's a network of people that, that uh, you know, seek out these farms and, and, you know, other chocolate makers. And, you know, now there's importers that are specializing in kind of the small farm, uh, you know, beans. So we have a lot of connections that way, and that's how we typically – our whole goal would be to visit every farm that we're getting cacao from. And, you know, somewhat of a, as assurance of, you know, letting the farmers know that, hey, we're going to be here to buy your beans. Um, and then also to know that they're doing things right, you know. And, and um, you'll hear a lot in the news, <clears throat> ethical chocolate, social responsibility, and things like that. And there's a lot of – challenges in the chocolate world, mm -hmm. um, we're buying from such small farms and in such small quantities that we've, we're able to really be selective on, on where we get our product from. And, you know, we don't want to turn our back on places that have challenges. So, you know, we see that as a, our responsibility, you know, okay, we're not ready to buy from you yet, but what can we do to help you get there, you know? Um, so out of that, actually, we're we're creating a foundation, and part of the proceeds of uh, the sales of all of our bean to bar and craft chocolate items will go to that foundation, and really, kind of a broad mission of to help the farmers, their families, and the workers in the regions we're buying cacao from. Have you made like a personal relationship? <clears throat> Do you have a farmer that you know somewhere in the world that you're thinking he's grown my, he or she? I'm assuming uh, it could be a family too. Uh, is growing that for me right now, and gee, I wonder how that how that crop's going to be. And yeah, in Nicaragua was was great because we actually had the opportunity to to stay with the farmers in their homes. Um, wow! And in this particular um, little region, um, most most chocolate's grown by very very small farms, and they put it together as a co op, and um, the company. It's a not-for-profit that's really helped this region kind of come together as a community and, and create a really, really nice business. Um, you know, 
The cow's typically a secondary crop for a lot of people. More than likely, especially in Nicaragua, coffee would be more lucrative. Mm-hmm. But what they've seen over the years in, in helping this community is they have um, <clears throat> kind of flipped that. You know, So they're growing better cacao. They're paying more attention to it. We're getting better beans and quality. They're getting more money as a result of that. And the communities have really come together. Um, so to see that firsthand is, is great. Makes us feel really good about you know what we're doing. Absolutely. Um, one thing <clears throat> that I think is different in having eaten through many of these bars is that um, it's. We need to be clear. It's not a candy bar. No. Um, yeah. Not. It's not a candy bar at all. We we actually the term candy <laughs> typically never you know is, is, is talked about in our shop. Um, you know, even the bonbons while they are technically candy we call them confections and you know i think the quality of ingredients and chocolate we're putting into it kind of can support that um but with with the craft chocolate especially you know kind of the way a lot of people consume that the way i like to consume that is just little squares at the end of the meal you know of two to three different kinds you get to kind of taste in between them i have my favorites people develop their favorites so they'll kind of come back to it but um the idea is to not Eat a, sit down and eat a whole chocolate bar at one time. You know, this is really something that's, uh, you know, an experience. And, and, you know, this is what we've we've noticed very early on about even our bonbons are it's kind of this great small luxury you can have every day, you know, for very little money. Sure, a chocolate bar might be $10, but it's going to last, you know, if you consume it kind of how we consume it, it's going to last you two weeks, you know. Now, I remember buying um, a box of bonbons for my grandmother, and she was overwhelmed by the beauty of it. So much so, she didn't want to eat them. <laughs> We've heard she that a lot. wanted yeah. to save them. Um, I think we found some in the closet once upon a time <laughs> that she'd been saving. Um, so, I mean, it's it's something to covet, but it's really a fresh product, right? And we should be eating this. Yeah, the bonbons. <laughs> the bonbons you should eat. You shouldn't hold those for more than a week or two. Um, some of them, you know, the caramels have a little bit of a longer shelf life, but the fresh ganache pieces, you know, we don't use preservatives. And this was the biggest challenge we faced when we first started uh, back in two thousand three. Was educating the consumer that you know, these aren't drugstore chocolates that are meant to sit on a shelf for a year before you buy them. Um, fresh cream, fresh butter. Um, fresh ingredients, you know, fresh fruits that, that will go bad, you know, no different than, you know, food in your refrigerator at home. So um, we encourage people to consume them within 10 to 12 days of, of purchase. So the chocolate bars are a little different. Those, you know, can last a year if kept in, in good condition. So that's why I think, you know, I'm, I know I'm not the typical consumer, but I have hundreds of chocolate bars in my office uh, from, you know, all these chocolate producers around the world. And I just eat, eat them, you know, I'll go through them, through them eventually. Whose bar do you really, do you really like or enjoy? Who, what chocolate maker do you look to and um, get inspiration from? One of my favorites actually is a, a native Missourian, um, Alan McClure from Patrick Chocolate down in, in Columbia. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's been in the business a long time and, and um, is one of the most talented chocolate makers. And the whole idea of making chocolate is almost the opposite of making bonbons. So you, the, the flavor is already there. You just have to uncover it. 
and not mess it up. You know, it's much like a, a really good chef will take a great piece of fish and, you know, don't screw it up. <laughs> right. You know, let let that great ingredient speak on its own. And so that that's kind of how we've, over the last two years, as we've been learning to make chocolate, is, you know, there's there's acids and things in there that we don't want. So our job is to get rid of those things and just uncover the, the natural flavor of what's there. And Alan is by far, you know, uh, a master of that. He specializes in Madagascar cacao, which is one of my favorite origins, you know, due to its really citrusy and, and kind of red fruit characteristic. And, you know, I don't know how he does it, but, you know, you, you almost eat that and you think that he's put raspberries in there or these other things, but those are all natural flavors. So do you guys know each other? Yeah. I remember when he first started, he um, um, helped me out a little bit on, or I helped him a little bit on learning how to temper chocolate and um, cast chocolate. And now it's kind of come full circle. I'm emailing him questions on, you know, bean to bar chocolate that, uh, that, you know, when I get stuck. So one thing that I think people don't know is that we have also Askinosi mm -hmm. nearby. So we have three really, like, uh, at least nationally, if not internationally famous chocolate makers right here in the Missouri area. How does how does that happen exactly? Is that, that an accident? Just coincidence. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I don't think people came to Missouri to do it. But, yeah, it is, it, it is kind of a, a unique thing for Missouri to have. The craft chocolate movement has really taken off, and a lot of that's been in the span of your business mm -hmm. cycle. How have people changed the idea of what chocolate is or expanded on the idea of what chocolate is? Because I think I grew up with a Hershey bar. My great-grandfather, that was the treat, mm -hmm. is before we left him, he would give us six Hershey bars. And <laughs> you were supposed to hang on to those, you yeah. know, and, and he was being extravagant. And I remember I didn't really like <laughs> but I didn't tell them. I took right. them, and and yeah, you know. we've watched. Uh, you know, over the sixteen years I've been in business, you know, we've watched this craft chocolate movement evolve. When I first started, nobody was quite doing it yet, and then maybe two to three years in, I started seeing. You know, I saw Alan McClure, and there was another gentleman in, in Colorado, Steve DeVries, who was kind of one of the pioneers of the bean to bar movement. And what's kind of cool is that this is almost uniquely an American phenomenon. You know? Really? Um, other countries are now in it, you know, over the past five to six years. But this is was kind of born in America, the small, you know, craft production of, of a small batch um, chocolate. And it's made people a lot more aware of, of cacao, of chocolate, where it comes from, and... Um, you know, and a good example of that is going to any Whole Foods and you've got a hundred different chocolate bars to choose from now. You know, back in 2003, there was, I don't know, 10 maybe, you know, or, or, or a lot of different like flavored chocolates and things like that. So it's been really neat to watch this evolve over the years. And, you know, we had the intention to get into that market a long time ago, but it just took a lot more research and a lot more time, you know, especially on learning how to make chocolate. It's uh, just a different skill set than, than what we had typically um, practiced prior to that. Um, you have a new space in which to do this. And mm -hmm. you said now everybody's under one roof. Describe a little bit about what's going on at the new factory and, and why that's going to change your production. 
So we moved into a new factory in September. Um, we were previously operating under three buildings, and it was just, you know, that's how we grew. You know, we kind of cobbled together and grew how we could um, with the resources we had, but we were just bursting at the seams at all three places and, and you know, communication and transportation and logistics. It was just getting too challenging. So we were um, able to find a building um, over by the roastery on Holly Street and refurbish it and get everything under one roof except for the retail operation. So you'll keep that? We'll keep that on uh, 1819 McGee. Uh-huh. Um, so we'll keep that. And we used to make all of our bonbons behind the glass. You know, when you go in, you can see back there. And when we moved out, you know, we were thinking, well, this is going to be empty. You know, we don't want customers to look at an empty space. So that kind of gave birth to the idea of doing our craft chocolate, our bean-to-bar line there. <clears throat> but then take it a step further and create an experience. So we're, we're in the process of developing, I don't know what the right term is, museum, you know, chocolate experience. Uh, but our, our whole idea is to have tours and bring people in teach them about the history of cacao, where it comes from, how it's been used over the years, how it's evolved into modern time. And then they'll be able to see every step of the chocolate-making process, taste everything along the way, and, you know, hopefully leave with a better understanding. You know, I, I think we're trying to identify one key thing that we want them to leave with. And, and I think if anything, um, if they're in the grocery store next time and you know, looking at chocolate, that they give it a little extra thought on on what chocolate they're going to select to consume. So what should the the label say? <clears throat> um, really, on a dark chocolate, there should only be, you know, two, maybe three ingredients in it, and that's cacao mass and sugar and maybe additional cocoa butter if there's much else in it. Sometimes there's vanilla in chocolate that's kind of come become synonym, synonymous with with chocolate because it's been used in chocolate for hundreds of years. Um, <clears throat> and then percentage-wise, you know, kind of kind of look at, um, uh, div- you know, figure out what kind of your sweet spot on, on your percentage is. You know, I always tell people a good starting spot would be right around 70% determine, and that's how we typically, when we get a new origin in, the first thing we do is make a 70% chocolate. And that's... We can gauge from there based on the flavor profile whether we can take it up. We typically wouldn't go down, you know, do anything much less than than uh, 70. Um, but pushing it up, I, I like 80, 85, you know, uh, for some origins are mm-hmm. uh, work really well. There's one guy that has been super successful at doing 100%. Is that possible? Wow. It is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he does it because I haven't been successful at it yet. Um, he's a guy up in New York called Fruition Chocolate that uh, the 100% is one of my favorite bars on the market. Wow. What does it taste like? Describe it. Um, so he's he's really worked hard at getting these really great fruit flavors and, you know, eliminating any of the tannins and, and the astringency that, that a lot of people associate with dark chocolate. <clears throat> we have a lot of people come in our shop that, like, I don't like dark chocolate. Just, you know. Right. And most of the time, by the time they leave their kind of attitude has changed and they're maybe think like, well, I just, I, I guess I haven't had the right or a good dark chocolate yet. I think um, my kids are <laughs> some of the, they're like, why won't Chris do a, <clears throat> uh, a, you know, just a milk chocolate? And I'm like, well, taste 
and of course they love what you do, but um, there's always that that person that wants some milk chocolate, I guess. Well, and I like I love milk chocolate. I don't really consume a lot of it. Um, and we actually started making one now. We have a, a bean to bar chocolate that we did a milk chocolate. You know, it's a what do you do? Fifty percent dark milk chocolate, so it's got a lot more cacao flavor, but you still get the creaminess from the milk, and mm-hmm. and it is more sweet. And that's typically what I don't like about milk. Most milk chocolates is they're cloyingly sweet. Um, but if you get the right milk, you know, you can develop some really great kind of caramely, you know, toasted milk flavors in in the in the chocolate bar that are really fun. So do you think in the new space that you're going to have, I mean, are people going to be able to sort of do a tasting to understand um, some of this, or are they just going to learn a little bit more about the process and visualize it? No, a big part of it is the tasting. Okay. Um, you know, like like we talked about a little bit ago of um, really understanding that these do taste different depending on where they're grown. Um, but we also want people to taste the beans themselves before it even you know sees sugar or anything else so they can kind of try to make that connection at the end of, you know, tasting the bean. Now here's the finished product that took us, you know, four to five days to make. And when do you think that that space is going to be ready? Because I want to get in line. <laughs> we hope in the fall. So we, we've got a lot of work ahead of us to get, you know, we want to have a super accurate, you know, um, depiction of of cacao. But then the hardest part is trying to winnow that down into you know, we have people's attention for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. You know, there's, I, I could make a, you know, probably fill the Nelson with a, with a, you know, the history of chocolate. So kind of carving out what are the key points and, and really, you know, that are going to make sense and, and um, kind of drive home when they do taste the finished product that it all kind of comes full circle. So what, can you just, Describe what what are the sort of stations or steps in chocolate making mm-hmm. that you kind of want to illustrate um, so that we under understand. Yeah, there's there's about five or so. Um, the first step would be sorting the beans. So, and this all has to be done by hand. This is super labor intensive. There's no machine um, for this. There is for big companies. You know, we, it would take up our whole probably our whole building if we we found something like that. Um, and a couple of the smaller chocolate makers have kind of, you know, a lot of them are engineers, so they've kind of built their own equipment. Um, but the first thing is to get rid of anything that's not going to make good chocolate. You know, we find rocks, um, sticks, you know, pieces of plastic, all kinds of strange things. You yeah, know, um, not delicious. The, you know, and those aren't going to make good chocolate. And there's also, you know, we have to pick out beans that are cracked and, you know, things that might have the potential to have mold or insects in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the very first step is to do that sorting. And then once we, we have all that done, uh, roasting is the very next thing we do. And this is where, as a chocolate maker, we kind of start to have control over how, what we want this to taste like. Um, so the roasting profiles, and, and this is very much like coffee. You know, we, it, it's done at longer temp, longer time, lower temperature. It's kind of this slow and low roasting um, and that's to drive off volatile acids and tannins and things that we don't want in our finished product, and then to help develop the the chocolate flavor. We will we'll do 10, 12 different roast profiles on a bean before we kind of figure out, like, hey, here's how we need to treat this particular bean. 
You're very meticulous. I've, I've, I've watched very you methodical. do this. This yes. is a very, you know, we, we kind of follow the scientific approach when we're making chocolate, where we, we change one thing and see what it has on the outcome. Then the next time we change one more thing, see what that has on the outcome. And that's really the only way to understand you know, the, the processes and what, how that's going to affect the final, the final chocolate. So after they roasted or roasted and cooled, then we have to get the shells off and we do that with what's called a winnower. So we put the beans in and they get cracked and then we have all the shell and the, the nib, which is the broken bean, mm-hmm. um, together in one bucket. And we put it through a machine that takes the shells away. And then at that point we've got our roasted nibs and this is what I like eating actually. So no sugar in them yet. Yeah. They haven't been refined. Um, they're just great to eat a handful of and, you know, put them on cereal, put them on ice cream. They're supposed cream to be very, very good for you too. Yeah. It's, terms of, cacao is one of the highest yeah. antioxidant mm-hmm. um, um, foods on the planet. And I always make sure I say cacao when I say that because chocolate, some, you know, people come in and are like, <laughs> I hear chocolate's healthy. And, you know, they're, they'll load up on the bonbons and caramels. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> With all the cream and butter, you yeah. know, and sugar we put in, we kind of probably defeated any, you know, any that's probably a net, net gain there. So, <laughs> um, but once we have a, the nibs, then we formulate our recipe, and this is where we start getting into the percentages. So typically, we'll start with uh, um, seventy um, percent. I, my personal pro style of chocolate, I like that kind of nice melt, so more of a European style. So we add additional cocoa butter. Um, and that just helps with the mouthfeel and the way it kind of uh, you know, melts on your palate and opens up. So we'll do typically 5 to 8% additional cocoa butter. Um, we don't do any vanilla. You know, the only thing we put vanilla in was the milk chocolate. Um, <clears throat> so after that, we put them in what's called a, a refiner or a melanger. And it's two big granite stones that turn on a granite base. And they'll stay in there for... Uh, anywhere from 48 to, you know, maybe maybe a little bit longer, 48 hours. And what's that doing? That is crushing the nib and the friction and heat actually bring the cocoa butter out and liquefy the nib. So seeing that connection between a pile of crushed beans and then you don't even have to add anything. You just friction and heat um, to pull out the cocoa butter. Um, and liquefying it is really kind of that magical transformation that, that you know, is kind of cool to make a connection to. And we're doing nothing in there really to develop flavor, although that's happening, but we're more concerned with particle size at that point. Mm-hmm. So we work to try to get it down to about 18 microns. Um, and that is really kind of the sweet spot for having a smooth, like, chocolate that melts and you don't get any grittiness or anything like that. Um, I think 30 is kind of where the tongue stops detecting um, the, the, the particle size, if you will. Uh, so 18 to 20 is kind of that sweet spot that we shoot for. It is possible to go too low. Uh, you can get uh, the particle size you know, too small to where it starts to fill in your taste buds and appear gummy. So it's kind of this fine line of... You know, is it 47 hours or is it 53, you know? So we do a lot of tasting and testing, you know, towards the end of that um, with the grind gauge and micrometers and um, it's kind of a... This is a, a geeky pretty, process. It, it is a geeky process, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, which is one thing that, that fascinates me about it, so... 
Um, and so once we have the particle size where we need, then then we can go to another machine called a conch. And this is, is really where we have another opportunity to affect the final flavor. If we maybe haven't gotten quite all the, the acidity out of the product that we want, we have an opportunity at this stage. And it's really just movement with heat and airflow um, um, that we're kind of working on driving off or volatizing some of those acids that we might might want or you know sometimes we don't really have to conch at all if we've if we've roasted right and gotten a really great you know roast profile um, then we don't have to spend a whole lot of time in the conch but we typically spend another 24 hours at pretty high temperatures you know and, and with a a lot of agitation uh, beating that chocolate so we're help, we're helping the texture a little bit and um, we're really kind of at this point fine-tuning the flavor and then at that point, it's ready to be cast into chocolate bars. And we, we have noticed, too, another, another process is we age it at that point. We've seen about two months um, is kind of the, the, where we see a little drop off. And, and we're not quite sure what's happening on a scientific level, if you will, mm -hmm. um, with that. But we do see kind of the flavors mellow a little bit. They come together a little bit more. Um, so we'll typically put them in big blocks, age them, and then in two months we'll cast uh, cast them into bars and they'll be ready to go out to market. So are you self-taught? I mean, did you figure this, th this is a lot of equipment, this is a lot of measurements, mm -hmm. um, a lot of science going on. Is this something you learn in culinary school um, or restaurant no. management? Or is this something <laughs> you have to get on the internet and read books and teach yourself? Yeah, this was something that was all, um, all self-taught, you know, and you know, talking to other chocolatiers and visiting, you know, other other chocolate makers. And the interesting thing about, like, all of the chocolate books I started reading when we were getting into this is they're all written in the, you know, early 1900s to 1950s. There's really not a, not a, not a lot of new, um, you know, material on the subject, you know, or, or speci specifically geared towards a small chocolate maker, you know. A lot of the books I w would read are geared towards huge industrial manufacturing. So we have to strip out, you know, the things we can learn from that and how do we adapt it to our much smaller equipment and, and process. So, And trial and error is really the best thing. So, you know, I think we have a good palate so we understand, you know, we have the ability to taste something and, like, okay, I think back at this step we need to make this one change. Um, you know, if there's a particular characteristic about that bar we don't like. I think you have a, a very striking palette, very well-developed. Um, did you do anything as a, as a, as a kid? Where, um, did you know that you could taste well? Um, do you teach yourself? Is this something you're born with or is this something you nurture along? I, I know a lot. There's some people that are born with that, and um, I certainly wasn't one of them. Um, I've had to work really, really hard at you know, especially over the last two years as we've gotten into the bean-to-bar movement, um, to really think about what we're tasting. And, and, and it's practice, and, it, and you know, it's, it's eating, um, not just shoveling food in your mouth and swallowing it without thinking about it. It's really this conscious effort of what am I tasting, how am I tasting it, um, <clears throat> you know, what are the negatives, what are the positives that I like, and being able to kind of file that in your memory bank and mm -hmm. come back and, and um, experience, uh, you know, experience that in another product. 
but it's it's been hard. That's been one of the hardest things for me personally is uh, developing that because it doesn't come naturally for me. It, I, I'm so surprised because you, you seem like one of those people. And and you also have this very intense uh, way about diving into anything you're very interested in. Mm-hmm. So wh- whether Borderline that's... obsessive. <laughs> whether it's your your business of chocolate or whether it's the extensions of it, which would be ice cream and soon to come donuts or cocktails. I know you're a big cocktail yeah. guy. Uh, I know you're a big bocce guy. So you've got a bocce court at your house. I mean, you're you're one of those people who dive in and dive pretty darn deep. Yeah, I've never been accused of uh, doing anything half halfway. So. <laughs> um, well, then speaking of, uh, this is a great <laughs> transition for like what made you dive into ice cream and then we'll get into donuts. So, <laughs> so I, ice cream always... Uh, used to be one of my favorite things to make as a pastry chef. You know, most of the restaurants I worked at, we had an ice cream maker and um, usually one part of a, one component of a plated dessert, you know, a lot of times would be, would be ice cream. And I like it because it's a similar process to, to chocolate making. It's a great flavor vehicle. Um, Almost every chocolate flavor we've made translates into an ice cream and we can take the same approach. We can use, you know, real fresh ingredients, you know, and, and really make these kind of bold, um, great flavors. And, um, you know, you, you actually with ice cream, to me, have a lot more leeway than chocolate as far as what you can throw at it because it is more of a neutral flavor profile. So it's a great vehicle for pretty much anything you can think of um, to, to throw in there. And so the same process, it's, it's uh, you know, Developing flavors there and thinking about the texture and how we want this to eat and, and melt in your mouth. There's a lot of thought that goes into that. And some of the things that you've put in there are like beer and Jude's rum cake and uh, goat cheese. And, uh, and and we should say your brand is not Christopher Elbow ice cream. It's mm-hmm. Glace um, and you're located on? At 50th and Main Street. 50th and Main. Mm-hmm. Um and it's are you open year round? I've been yeah. seeing some stuff on Instagram, even though it's a freezing we're, cold we're January. Open People eat ice cream in, in January and February. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we have our busy season, but um, yeah, we're open year round, and uh, the uh, people more than likely in the winter time come in and get pints to take home and eat, eat in the comfort of their own home. But uh, we still. Uh, we still see people brave the cold and come in and eat ice cream. And uh, take us back. How many years ago did you start Glace? That was nine years ago. Wow. It's been that long. Been that long, yeah, 2010. I thought it came a little later. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so now you're talking about donuts. Donuts, yeah. My goodness. And coffee. And coffee. Okay. And, and ice cream again. Okay. So fill us in. So we um, we were kind of looking for another location for you know, to do another ice cream store and um, this building that I've always loved, um, kind of opportunity to acquire that came on the market and it's at 59th and Mission. It was the former Pizza 51 space and, and before that, a former Sinclair gas station. Yeah, so gas station dining. Cool, yeah, it's this <laughs> cool looking building that, that still looks like a gas station and, you know, would love that aesthetic. 
Um, so we were, you know, and it's in a fantastic neighborhood in Fairway, a lot of families and there's a park, you know, close by. So ice cream, no brainer. And as we kind of were diving into, you know, developing the business plan, I've, people who know me know my kind of affinity for donuts. Um, I just was like, this is too good of an opportunity not to do donuts at this location. And, uh, so we're working on developing, we're just starting our testing this week, actually, on developing uh, what we think is a great donut. And then we'll also be full-service coffee, so we'll open at 6 in the morning. And um, <clears throat> we really want to kind of be a true neighborhood destination. So, you know, we named it Fairway Creamery and kind of going to have somewhat of a nostalgic uh, feel to it you know, as opposed to my, maybe the more modern, you know, glossé. Um, and that will be reflected in the product as well. So uh, there's lots of donuts out there in the world. There's cake, there's mm-hmm. uh, yeast, there's mm-hmm. uh, sprinkled, there's adorned, there's savory, there's sweet. Uh, where, where are you going? What is the perfect donut experience in Christopher Elbow's world? So I'm a huge cake and old fashioned, like the sour cream old fashions and a cup yeah. of coffee that, that, that could be my breakfast, um, daily if uh, my health would allow it. Um, and we're going to kind of take the same approach. I think, you know, you'll see this theme of not going overboard. You know, it's, you know, I'm a big fan of do something and do it really, really well. You know, you don't have to cover it up with a ton of toppings and things like that. So I think our, our, you know, you're going to see class, a lot of classic flavors. You know, we'll do the the lemon, we'll do maple, um, you know, regular glaze. But, you know, in our glaze, we're going to have Madagascar vanilla beans in it. Um, so, again, that one or two kind of simple, clean flavors. If we do like a, like a raspberry glazed cake donut, we're just going to smash fresh raspberries up into the glaze. So, again, getting that natural, you know, really great, flavor, but we're going to do everything. We'll do yeast raised. We'll do filled donuts, you know, with fresh jams and, and pastry creams. We'll do uh, the old fashions and um, we'll keep the toppings fairly, you know, fairly straightforward and, and approachable. So it strikes me that donuts <clears throat> are the thing that you have to be making every single day and you got to get them early in the mm-hmm. morning. Whereas chocolate has a little bit more leeway, you could probably do lots of boxes and bars, uh, you know, a couple days before you were selling them. Uh, Same with ice cream. You can freeze it, right? So Mm -hmm. you can make it ahead of time. So how does this, like, how does this blow your mind in terms of putting together? (laughs) This is is a very different business model for you, isn't it? It is, and... I might not have thought that through really before we jumped into this. Uh, <laughs> You're all about um, the flavor. <laughs> going to be getting up at two in the morning and and uh, you know going into McDonald's, but um, yeah, we'll we'll make them every morning. When we sell out, we sell out. That's kind of our plan is is to to make a a set amount every day. You know, it's going to be a pretty small operation, so we won't be um, <clears throat> you know cranking out thousands and thousands of donuts every day. Um, but we're developing that kind of schedule right now. And, you know, what we're working on um, just to start with is how do we make the perfect cake donut? You know, what are the qualities of a, of a perfect cake donut? What are the qualities of a perfect yeast donut? And then we'll think about the flavors that we put on them. So mm-hmm. that, that base has to be, you know, in my mind, 
kind of stand on its own. Like you could eat that plain cake donut and you're going to get this kind of crispy exterior and then the soft, you know, crumb inside. You know, the, the yeast raised donut should have a, a little bit of pull to it, you know. So working on that, you know, and again, this is back to that scientific approach of yeah, getting that down. And then we can start playing with flavors. And you know, I, I think the flavors are going to be the easy part and the icings and the the, the glazes and the toppings, you know. Will people be able to see the donuts being made? I know in some places you you can see it. And again, if you think about, you could see in the chocolate. Mm-hmm. You never really did see the ice cream making because that happened behind in the kitchen. Right. Um, is this is this also a visual thing? Um, will they you see won't really making? be able to see it, um, you know, because the, the way we're setting the kitchen up, it, it will be a little farther behind. You know, it's still open kind of, you know, we're having to kind of figure out how to work the ice cream and the donut production into the same kitchen. So it's a, a little more challenging, but um, you won't really be able to sit there and watch them be made at this location. So what's the opening date on this? Do you have one yet? We're shooting for May. So for May. Early, early, okay. early May. You know, okay. we want to definitely be open by the summer. So we're we're moving fast on this project. How exciting. So. Can't wait. And I'm sure the lines will be long. Um, anything else you're doing collaboration wise or five years down the road? What else? What other food? Are you going to have a pizza shop? Um, I, I'm done. After this, I'm done. Come on. You want a pizza oven, don't you? Or let's see. What else can we think of for you? I'm sure, you know, um, I've, I've toyed around with, uh, you know, the cocktail thing, but I think I've determined that that's, yes. I want that to be a hobby only. Um, I think this, uh, the donut and a new ice cream shop is is going to keep us really really busy. So I think for the foreseeable future, that's kind of where I'm uh, uh, gonna gonna have some restraint and and not try to do anything different. And you are sold in many states um, as far as chocolate. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's your reach at this point? Um, and where you know. Where does Christopher Elba go? Is this a franchise eventually for these different businesses, or do you want to keep them? I don't. I think you know, for the chocolate shop, um, you know, we'll never we'll never franchise or never. You know, know, we've curated that over sixteen years to to kind of be what it is, and um, you know, we're still a small company. We're a small batch production. You know, we're we're, I, I don't see it ever changing from that. The new concept, the Fairway Creamery. I could see that being multiple locations and possibly a franchise um, opportunity somewhere down the road. Uh, we're certainly thinking about that as we develop the concept um, and, and you know, having that guide our, our business plan for sure. So I could see that as, as being something that maybe grows far beyond how, how big our chocolate company is at this point. Yeah. We are very lucky to have you in Kansas City. I have to ask before we go, when do you sleep? Because that's a lot of food to be pumping out. It is. But, uh, you know, I've, again, I have a great staff and, and a lot of support. So, um, you know, the, they um, they can execute my vision, you know, and I think that's been the key. And, and kind of to the Fairway Creamery concept, um, I just brought on Todd Schulte as a kind oh, of the fantastic. director From of operations. and Genesee Royale mm-hmm. um, and, and speak, speak fame. And, you know, I've been a big fan of his food. Um all along the years and, you know, he's a great guy and, you know, a hard worker. And I kind of needed, you know, the thing about doing this now as I'm 16 years into the business is I kind of understand the support I need moving into a project so I don't take all the burden 
you know, on my shoulders. And I think Todd's going to be a tremendous asset, you know, to get this concept up and running and allow me to, you know, possibly go out and, and look for location number two pretty shortly after the first one's open. I, uh, that's great to hear that he's joining you in this. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. wondered where he, where he was going to land next. Yeah, so that's yeah. great. Um, and so you sleep about how many hours a day? You said I, I get I get, seven, <laughs> yeah. I get I get a good seven every night. So I can't function if I don't. <laughs> wow. Well, you're such a busy guy. We really appreciate you taking the time to come in. My pleasure. Especially before Valentine's Day. And final final question is: Valentine's Day is the biggest chocolate sells. Yes, or is the, there another holiday that, that eclipses that it? That day, that day will be the biggest, like our biggest sales day of the year. Christmas yeah. is still our biggest season, but it's, you know, five weeks long of, you know, big corporate orders. Valentine's Day is, you know, just a bunch of dudes coming in and buying (laughs) one box, you know, at the very last minute. So don't procrastinate, you know, and and skip the line. So hurry up and get your tattoo box. Yeah, exactly. All right. Christopher Elmo, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.